You're listening to the weekly podcast of the services at Stonegate Fellowship Church in Midland, Texas. For more information about Stonegate, visit StonegateFellowship.com. I'm a firm believer that a truth is a truth is a truth. A principle is a principle is a principle. So if you will learn to read through the filter of Scripture, you'll be wiser for that. Uh, and, and I've shown our congregation this. What I mean is theoretically, you, you imagine the word of God being the filter that you receive a book through and, and you'll be able to uh, wisely uh, come to the conclusions you need to come to. But near the end of the list, I give you some books that I think are, are essential for a man who's walking with Christ, though I will tell you they are not easy. But starting at the top of the list, I'm a huge Simon Sinek fan. If you don't know who Simon Sinek is, there's two books, the only two he's written. Uh, you should probably start with, start with Why and then read Leaders Eat Last. Leaders Eat Last is probably uh, mandatory reading for leaders in our city and in our culture right now. So um, he's a thoroughgoing evolutionist. He's a thoroughgoing naturalist. Um, I'm kind of hoping to have him here someday. I'd love to sit down with him and talk to him. I, I can't figure out how he remains a naturalist and believe the things he believes. But anyways, uh, big John Maxwell fan, The Five Levels of Leadership, good stuff. Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. That's a Christian author. Uh, John Maxwell is too. Uh, Daniel Coyle, The Talent Code. Talent is Overrated by Jeff Colvin, I think is a book you ought to put in the hands of your kids and you ought to pay him a couple hundred bucks to read it. And by the way, I do pay my kids to read, by the way. If anybody thinks, you know, wow, pay your kids to read? Absolutely. If you'll pay them to mow the yard or cut the grass, whichever term you use, or brush the dust, I don't know what you do, but uh, if you will pay them to do chores, but you will not pay them to read, then you have just told them that what they can do with their muscles is more important than what they can do with their brain. And so you should pay your children to read. I paid all of my kids to read the Chronicles of Narnia, um, I even made at one time a $1,000 bet with one of my kids for a, se- a season of books. And I have also used books for, um, for an opportunity to do something. If I've had a child ask me for something to do, a big event, to travel, uh, I'll put selected books in front of them and I'll tell them if they'll have these books done by a certain amount of time, then I will participate or allow. Case in point, if you've ever had your child ask for Oakley sunglasses, They are not cheap, but if they can earn those through a series of books, I'm happy to do that. I bought my son his first pair of Oakleys after he read three books in one month. They were all biographies that I picked out. One was of Tim Tebow and just had him read them. And then he had to tell me what they were all about. So I hope you guys will understand the leverage you have uh, in their brains and in their minds. Make your children readers. Make them readers, make them readers, make them readers. As it has been well said, and I often misquote it, the only difference between someone who doesn't read and who is illiterate is nothing. And so the, the other book by Saul Alinsky, you know, that's uh, Barack Obama's favorite person. And so Rules for Radicals, um, if, if, if you'll just read that book, everything that happens in our culture right now, you'll understand it. You'll understand why there's lies that are told in order to get to a certain place. You'll understand why politicians have no problem throwing out uh, statements that they know are not accurate in order to start a conversation to get to an end to which they're trying to get to. Uh, if you don't understand your enemy, you can never defeat your enemy. I would submit that most people don't understand the enemies we have and therefore are complete idiots in regards to how they do battle. 
Uh, the books you should have read, the last part, you know, the seven habits of highly effective people. I've rarely met a man who hasn't said this to me about that book. Yeah, I read that. But to know and to not do is to not know, which is a famous quote out of that book. Most of you probably have that book on your bookshelf, but you've never worked through identifying your core values, so you haven't even started the book. So it's a great book. Another Jim Collins fan. I'm a huge Jim Collins fan. Good, good to great, great by choice, How the Mighty Fall. Probably another book, How the Mighty Fall, that our culture needs to read uh, today. Another, some John Maxwell books, 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, Developing the Leader Within You. Malcolm Gladwell's got some good stuff, The Tipping Point, Outliers. John Piper's Desiring God. We studied that in this men's Bible study about 20 years ago, and it's a, uh, it's a great book. It's not an easy read. Piper's not easy, or uh, uh, Piper is tough, actually. He's, um, in fact, you'll have to read it about six times before you begin to understand even one thing. So um, just, at least for me, some of you are much smarter than me. I have to read it very slow and go through multiple highlighters and, and then go, what? And then J.I. Packer, Knowing God, we did that one in here. The Complete Works of Francis Schaeffer, uh, you would be well served to read his uh, first volume of that and then wonder how in the world he wrote it in 1967 and 68. I read from it last week to you. Biographies, The Swans Are Not Silent is a five book series. If you want a place to start with your children, buy those five books. They're very small. There's three biographies in each book. You can actually, if you want to do this, you can go to John Piper's website, which is desiringgod.org, and you can download him preaching these biographies. And so you can listen to him talk about these guys. These are phenomenal biographies that he teaches about great men of the faith. So there's about 15 of them in five books, three biographies per uh, book. You ought to read Eric Metaxas's biography of Bonhoeffer. It's big though. It's going to take you some time. And you ought to read his biography of William Wilberforce. Tell you a funny story, then we'll move on. Uh, several, several years ago, I had read Eric Metaxas's book, William Wilberforce. You know who he is. I've told you about that. He's responsible for the abolition of slavery. It was his lifetime objective, his entire time in parliament in Great Britain, which he ran for on a whim. He was a rich, spoiled kid. And he said, I'll just run for Congress. And he won and God changed his life. John Newton actually changed his life, who wrote Amazing Grace, who was a slave trader. And William Wilberforce went to John Newton and said, I think I want to go into ministry. John Newton said, you will waste the calling of God on your life by going into ministry, be in politics and change the world. And so Wilberforce decided the abolition of slavery would be what he would commit his life to. So my son is in a history class. This is when uh, my son was going to school with some of you guys, Kent, your son, and they were all in the same age together. I think they were juniors. And a teacher said, do a biography of a highly influential person of history. And I had just read this book. And I told my son, I said, you ought to do William Wilberforce. So he went up to the teacher and he said, I'm going to do William Wilberforce. And the teacher says, well, I hope you can find some material. I've never heard of that guy. And that's a history class. So that's kind of interesting. And, uh, so he does a paper and, and, you know, he gets the perfunctory B because the teacher didn't know who it was. So anyways, my youngest son, who is now going through the same high school and has the same teacher, uh, goes to the same history class. And he comes home two weeks ago. He's, dad, dad you're never going to believe this. I say, what happened? He goes, I, the teacher said we had to do a, um, a historical biography and we were going to have to do research on it. And then the teacher said, do any of you know, the teacher said, I bet none of you know who William Wilberforce is. And Chapman goes, uh, he was in parliament. He was responsible for the abolition of slavery. 
To which, this is the teacher who said, I hope you can find information on this guy. And, and then the teacher said, well, what is he responsible for? And, and he said, well, the abolition of slavery in Great Britain and eventually the entire world. He hasn't read the book, but we've had dinner and talked about this. But it's just funny how it all comes around, isn't it? Psalm 103, let me read this to you. Don't t- if you want to take the time to find it, you can. Let's let this pave our way. Oh, and by the way, that's a huge list of books. Um, make it about a seven-year journey, Okay. I, I didn't, I'd tell you to just don't, you know, just pick one out and just go, you know what? I'm going to take some time to read this. And so here's the deal. If you asked me, if you came up to me right now and you said, give me one book on this whole thing that I should read. I, I haven't even thought of that question. So let me, um, I would either read Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. Okay. And here's why it's really small and you'll get a win. Like you'll, you'll, you'll pick it up and you'll read it and you'll go, I read a book and, and I'm, I, I did it. And so, um, and, and then I would encourage you to read um, Amazing Grace by William Wilberforce, about William Wilberforce. Read a biography, okay? Read a biography. The biographies of great men. It's always important to read the biographies of dead men. When you read the biographies of people that are still alive, we still haven't figured out who they are. So be careful. Psalm 103 says, bless the Lord, O my soul and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives our iniquity, who heals our diseases, who redeems our life from the pit, who crowns in the, in the first person, who crowns you or crowns you in the second person with steadfast love and mercy. Make that personal. Put it in the first person. He redeems my life from the pit. He crowns me with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies me with what is good, so that my youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Boy, listen to this. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, So great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust, is how it actually reads. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind passes over it. It's gone. Its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant, remember, to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Father, we want to bless you today by the way we walk and the way we talk and the way we live. We're going to drop the ball. We're probably going to fail in multiple ways today. But I pray that as the righteous falls seven times and he continues to get back up, we would continue to walk with Jesus boldly and with great confidence as we go through this day. Open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word. I pray that our community, our family, our homes, our businesses, everything that we set foot in and engage will begin to experience change because you're changing us and you use your people as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. God, prepare us to be um, 
what you have called, designed, and gifted us to be today and for what time you have for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Find your way to Hebrews. Let's uh, dive back in. We'll start in chapter 4. On the notes that you have, let me kind of walk through this quote with you at the very top of the page. I'll wait till you get to Hebrews 4. My area of greatest, greatest vulnerability is not in what I might do, but rather in what I might choose to deeply believe. You do, you will never behave outside of what you believe. That is why as a church and as a religion, when we start with behavior, we lose. You have to start with belief. The children of Israel journeyed in the desert with a cloud by day and a fire by night, and they still missed the promised land. You can be surrounded by what appears to be the presence and power of God, but if you choose not to believe it, you will not walk into the rest and the contentment God has for you. Your behavior is an absolute, absolute reflection of what you believe. The most dangerous, second sentence, mental or heart choice is the one that ever so slightly allows me to believe that God will not meet my need at the deepest level of my desire and hoped for contentment. There is not one part of your being that God does not desire to meet the need that he has created there. He has created a desire in you for hunger, literally hunger. Now, as you obey him and take care of the temple of the Holy Spirit, even though you eat at the diner in Norman that we talked about, so don't come up to me and say, but you eat fat-filled food. I eat a salad afterwards. When the way you take care of this temple is a reflection of whether or not you believe God is interested in that. God is deeply interested in your sex life. He is deeply interested in your satisfaction at work and the desire to labor. He has wired in you these desires. For us to think that Jesus is only interested in religious expression is to be deceived by the enemy. I can mask obedience. This is the second part of that quote. I can mask obedience and pretend satisfaction and joy through carefully guarded behavior modification and well-orchestrated religious habit. The truth is, many of you in this room are better Christians than other guys because you're more disciplined, because you're really disciplined guys. You, you've, you've caught on to something you like, and therefore you practice a particular lifestyle. But eventually, the practice of a lifestyle may not exchange itself for the power of the life you've been promised. So the question becomes what you believe and what you are convinced of inside. If I do not believe in his promised and provided for rest, I will fall away and miss the promised land. I've written this in my notes. Either Jesus has a life for me that is abundant and full, or he offers nothing. See, we have this belief that Jesus came to offer me simply heaven. That is not what he came to offer. He came to redeem my life and bless me with him forever in heaven. It is not just get out of hell, get me out of trouble, and help me when my family's having a bad time. 
It is a transformative life. It was not just leaving Israel or leaving Egypt to get to a destination. It was leaving Egypt because of a gracious God who redeemed their lives and was bringing them to an experience of his power and his presence in their lives. And they did not believe that. Your walk with Jesus, I I put it up here, this, this phrase keeps running through my mind that God desires powerful men. Jesus did not inaugurate a movement to hold us back and for us just to sit back. Let me take you to point number one. Rest, recharge, and charge ahead in and out of a deeply personal and freeing refuge and supply for a greater life of power and obedience. Let me begin reading in chapter four, verse 12. I'm actually gonna read in verse 11 and I'll take us through 5.10. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Remember, rest is not a place where you sit and take a nap. I want you to begin to think of rest as a launching pad. It It is this place where we are settled in who we are, prepared for what he will do completely settled in who I am in God, but prepared for what he might do. The children of Israel were not settled in who he was and who they were in him. Therefore, they were not capable of launching into a promised land. There were two who were, Caleb and Joshua. And I'm gonna tell you, we're gonna look at Joshua near the end of this deal. I love that guy. I mean, in his 40s, he said, let's do this deal. And then in his 80s, he said, I'm as good as I was in my 40s. Show me a giant to kill. And he actually says this word. He says, I might win. I love that. I absolutely love that. I'm so tired of getting cards from students who say, I just want to make sure that God's will for me is perfect. What they mean is I don't want to fail. When the truth is God might walk you right into failure in order to teach you something or show somebody something about him. So rest, a place of contentment ready for launch. So no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Isn't that interesting? Because he says they fell in disobedience because they were not content in their rest. It's what they believe that leads to their disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces the division of soul and spirit Joints and marrow. Now that's an interesting phrase. It just simply means God knows who you are. He knows the you that makes you you. He knows what drives you. He knows what you're thinking. He knows your passions and he knows the closets we hide ourselves in. And it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's an interesting word in the Greek, the word account It's the word logos or logos, depending on how you want to say it. It's the same word that's used in John where it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That's an interesting choice. It's not a word that means a testimony, but it really is a word that reflects back to the accounting of your life, either being a reflection of Jesus or not. Let's keep reading. Since then, and we're going to dwell on this issue more in the weeks ahead, so let me just read through it. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence 
draw near to the throne of grace, boldness, literally boldness. That means crashing in. That means barging in. That means running into the bedroom, so to speak. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of unmerited favor and abundant supply, which is grace, that we may receive mercy and find unmerited favor and abundant supply, that's grace, to help in time of need. It literally reads a well-timed supply, a well-timed grace. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of them in relationship to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward because he is beset with weakness as well. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins as he does for those of the people. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Let me keep reading, get this under our belts. So Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you're my son, today I've begotten you. He says also in another place, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. We'll talk about that in about two weeks. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. You remember that occasion. This is when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, at least the one time we know of. We are not told of other areas where Jesus might have been in supplication before the Father, but we have been given in the gospel record at least one occasion where Jesus is agonizing over going to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, Dad, let this thing pass from me, but I will do your will. A perfect expression of how we're supposed to live. And it goes on to say, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, if your translation says what mine says, although he was a son, that's a mistranslation. It literally reads, he was a son, is a son indeed. He is the son of God. So it's a, it's a weak translation in the, um, in the New English Bible. But anyways, he learned obedience through what he suffered. That's literally, he walked the walk he was supposed to walk. And being made perfect or having been made perfect or being in perfection he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now go to the next quote under number one in your notes. This whole process, and I'm just gonna give you a little process here in a minute. This process of men surrendering themselves to God is not about minimized manhood and Hollywood buffoons. Now let me tell you why I've said that. Some night, uh, it you know, just sit down and watch television shows that have dads in them, okay? And see what our culture has done to men. It turns them into idiots. They're stupid. They're, they're mindless. They don't understand life. They just come home from work. And, and they're just, it's sort of like we have not graduated from Archie Bunker status, okay? We're just, it's still a bunch of Archie Bunkers. And I know when I was growing up, we weren't allowed to watch that show, nor were we allowed to watch Love American Style, but I'm sure none of you did either. And that joke never works with youth. They're like, what? And, and so only a few of you know that as well. But this whole depiction of men, and then if you have a, a religious man, it's even more interesting how he is, how he is lampooned. And so apparently, the only uh, man who is a real man is a man who does not mind at all what lifestyle you choose, who is a man who is completely all for tolerance, whatever the crap that means, or he's a man who doesn't stand for anything, 
or I could just keep going on. And, and when you look at the, the culture and how it sees Christians or religious men and how it paints men, there's got to be a different model. And I'm not talking about a bunch of guys running around in skirts and beating the crap out of each other. But I am saying there's a, there's a, there's a godfulness that has to change this. So this process is not about minimized manhood and Hollywood buffoons, but rather the emergence of God-centered, scarred over, I intentionally use that word because God intends, deliberately used word, intends for you to be deeply wounded. Deeply. Because only in the deepness of my wound can he teach me the dependence that I have on him and he can scar that over and I have battle scars to remind me of a sufficient savior. He will deeply wound you. He will, I'll say it another way so you can wrestle with it. He will allow you to be deeply cut. He will allow you to, to feel the slice of the enemy's sword. At the deepest part where you need to learn, you can trust him. And allow it to be scarred so that when you take your shirt off and you look in the mirror, you will see the reminder of a sufficient savior who will hold you up, bear you up, fight your fight in any circumstance he puts you in. So you can have a Caleb mindset who says, I've been fighting wars for 40 years. Show me another giant. See, we have a lot of guys who want to wallow around in their festering wound rather than letting a holy God scar it over and say, now you know how to fight. Now you know. Those are God-centered men. Scarred over, bold living, promised land grabbing men of God who know who they are because of God in Christ and who will subsequently live who they are and who they are supposed to be by the power of God no matter the daily confines or circumstances of life. If you have a child who is wayward, pray that God gently wounds them, but they see the wound quickly. Because until the prodigal son is wounded in the pit of the pigs, he will not realize what he had and what he can have. See, oftentimes we're praying, oh God, rescue them. Oh God, keep them from harm. But your heavenly father might be driving them to a battle that might literally almost take their lives. And then they walk out of it. See, some of us have never even risked the boldness of a life in Christ that would wound us. We are of no fear, of no consequence to the enemy. And so we become powerless. But let me walk you through a process whereby we might become mighty men of valor and mighty men of faith. And remember, mighty men of valor and mighty men of faith are not guys who can bench 315 three times, okay? This is, this is not guys who can walk around, you know, and, and, and wear a mohawk. That, you know, you, you might be really good on the piano and the guitar, and you might be awesome in the garden. That's still a warrior. That's still the way God has designed you, but there's still a different way to live. You never, you never measure the impact of a warrior by what you see on the outside. 
at all. You, you just don't. So let's go through this process of what it, what it is to be a powerful man. You know, before we do that, we've got some time. Hey, jump over to the Old Testament. Keep your place in Hebrews and jump over to Joshua. I want to show you this passage because I keep referring to him. Go to Joshua uh, chapter 14, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. I think that's right. Is that right? Yeah. Joshua chapter 14. Let me show you this whole thing with Caleb. Because you know, Caleb and Joshua, they were two of the spies that Moses sent out into the promised land. They're the only two that came back and said, we can do this. I hope you'll just dog ear your Bible or mark this and just maybe put this in front of you and say, God, give me a heart like Caleb, man. I just want you to see his story. Joshua 15, real quick. So the children of Israel have been wandering in the desert. They're, God's bringing them into the, to the land he'd promised another generation. So he's already surpassed the previous generation. Joshua chapter 14, verse six. I just, I would love to see him. I, I kind of get this idea that if, if we get the chance to meet him in heaven someday, that it's gonna be completely different than what you expect. He's probably gonna be five foot nothing and... Uh, you know, just a scrappy dude, you know, one of those guys, like a Dustin Pedroia kind of guy. So the people of Judah, verse six, came to Joshua at Gilgal and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenazite said to him, so, hey man, you know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God and Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me. It's a little conversation between Joshua and Caleb. Caleb does not come up the entire narrative until here. Okay. He's, he's on the side. We don't read about him. He says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people um, melt. Let me turn the page here. Yet I wholly follow the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day saying, surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, verse 10, here's where it turns. I, God would have loved to have seen this meeting. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 40 years since the time the Lord spoke his word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. Guys, why has God kept you alive? What did your grandfather not possess that it's your duty to possess for your family? What did your father not possess that it's your duty to possess for your family? What did your great great-grandfather not possess that it's your duty to possess that he kept you alive for? Don't look back on generations past and go, well, I'm descended from a long line of alcoholics. But rather turn that around and say, I'm descended from a long line of people who never discovered who they were in Christ. And I'm changing that. Why has he kept you alive? To have a good job? To raise your kids? That's just a short period of your life. Why has he kept you alive? Why has he allowed you or caused you to be in the lineage in which you live? Why are you here? Have you even thought about that? Because Caleb knew why he was there for 40 years waiting for the opportunity to expose itself. Are you, do you have any concept of what it is the, the bridge you would die on, the why to the reason you're here, that you're to change, anything at all, even a dream. And remember what Bobby Evans told us about dreams when he was here, the guy from San Francisco. By the way, his wife had the baby yesterday, if you remember him telling us that story, and he was in Florida in arbitration. 
and she was in San Francisco. And uh, so he was able to make it back just after the baby was born. But anyways, remember what he said about dreams? Dreams don't always end up in the destination we anticipated. But dreams can get us to a destination we would have never imagined. Caleb. And now behold, I am this day 85 years old. This just sounds like such a, I just would love to meet this guy. He's the guy that shows up at the Y and everybody goes, look at him, look at those shoes. And he goes, you wanna play ball? And he kicks your rear. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. So give me this hill country of which the Lord... That he spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the giants are there with great fortified cities. May it be that the Lord would be with me and I'll drive them out as the Lord said. Is there anything in your heart that bleeds for that fight? Is there anything about your walk with the Lord that threatens giants that a generation rejected? Why do, you, why do you do church? Why do you do this thing called Christianity? So you can have crosses on your wall that say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord? Or are you passing on something that creates William Wilberforce's and Dietrich Bonhoeffer's? Or are you just trifling in mud pies in the strips when Jesus promises a surfing adventure in the ocean? What, what in the world drives a guy for 45 years to say, show me a giant? What do you get up for? Go to work? Why do you go to work? What does your wife see in you? A guy who's still caught up in all his failures? A guy who's still wishing for something better? Or a man who says, I want to fight. Letter A under the process gets us this direction. I'm going to go through these because I'm not going to leave these undone until next week. One way or another, I'm going to be naked. <laughs> The faster and more often I get here, the better off I'll be. Now, if you're not careful, a bunch of men will go, yeah. But what it says right there in Hebrews chapter four that his word exposes us and we become naked before him. What I'm encouraging you to do, gentlemen, and let me give you, there's a couple of passages there. James chapter four, verse 10. First Peter chapter five says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he'll exalt you at the proper time. It, it, it says, um, to just, Acts chapter three, verse 19 says, repent that times of refreshing might come. Here's the scary thing. No matter how I pray, God sees right through my facade of prayer and sees right into the battles that I sometimes don't wanna confess. And yet, first John tells me, perfect love casts out fear. Genesis chapter three shows me the first time that fear showed up. And that was when Adam had sinned and God walked through the garden. He said, Adam, what's up? And he says, I'm afraid. Guys, I, I hope this makes sense. I wrote it in the notes. Don't be afraid to be naked before your creator. In other words, don't be afraid whether it's literally, I'd, I'd encourage you probably not to stand in the bathroom and do this, but just 
Figuratively, God, you see every part of me. You see the parts that, that scare me to death. This morning, when I was, it was, you know, 4.45 in the morning, I just started writing and praying, God, these are the things that I'm afraid of. Lay that stuff out. Don't believe that gunk you hear from people that says, well, if you think it or profess it, it's gonna happen. Just be honest with your father, just like you would want your son or daughter to be if they're hurting, that they would come to you one day and say, dad, this is what scares me because you know what you do, I think. You would not go, that's stupid. You would not do anything except scoop them up and carry them and, and encourage them. Why would the God who created you and who sent his son to die for you? This, is, this verse that the word of God cuts us deeply is not a verse to engender fear, but it is a verse to encourage transparency because as the scriptures tell us, Jesus abides at the right hand of God to forever intercede for you. As a matter of fact, turn over to chapter 10. Let me just sort of show you this. Actually, chapter seven, seven. I knew I had the wrong chapter. Chapter seven. Chapter seven, verse 24. When you expose yourself, not in some perverted sense, but when you let the word of God cut you, look at verse 24. And again, we're gonna talk more about his priesthood in a couple of weeks. Verse 24, chapter seven. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. This is Jesus. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost completely those who draw near to God through him. Check this out. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. He lives to make intercession for you at the throne of God. But that intercession is oftentimes determined by my willingness to be open and exposed before him. And the irony of this thing is he already knows. He's just waiting for me. It's that kid example again. It's kind of that parental thing where you know, you're just waiting for them to realize that you knew. And then they come talk to you and they say, how'd you know? And you know, you just tell them you're God. But he, he is the king and he knows. Guys, get naked before your king. And I think you know what I mean. Until you get here. Until you get here, we're getting ready for camp this year. And here's the number one question we get from students. There's about two of them. And here's how they're mostly phrased. I mentioned it earlier. How come I can't hear God speak? How come I can't figure out his will for my life? And said another way, how come he won't answer me? And you know what the answer to that is? It's pretty simple, but nobody wants to hear it. You are not naked before him yet and completely surrendered to him yet. He will not expose an answer until you expose yourself and say, I got nothing. You see, a lot of people want a direction from God without a surrender to him. But until there is a total surrender, there will never be a Caleb moment. Caleb was ready to sacrifice it all. See, we have people, God show me, God show me, God show me, God show me. And if I can put it this way, God's going, I need all your cards on the table. I already know your hand. So I need all your cards on the table to show me you trust me. Remember, you will surrender to what you believe promises you the greatest return. Guys, get before the Father. Letter B, the process. 
Remind yourself that you have a priestly warrior or advocate. I'll show you number two in a minute, who will not let go and who knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're feeling and he knows what you're fighting. Now we don't have time to look at it. Again, in two weeks, we'll look at this priesthood. But um, chapter four, verse 14, we just read. Chapter two, verse 14 through 18. Chapter four, verse 14 through 16. Chapter six, verse 19 through 20. Continue to remind you, you have a savior interceding for you who knows what you're thinking. Here's the temptation you'll face. Jesus could have never known this pressure and you will be wrong. And he is advocating for you. He is a warrior for you. He is a priest for you. He is an advocate for you. And skip down to the big number two, And let me just show you something real quick. It says, the perfect perfection of Jesus, my priestly warrior and advocate. Letter A, Jesus grasped and he held on to and he completed his role as perfect high priest. He knew his why. He came so that others might have life. He knew why he was walking. He knew why he was dying. He knew his why. And letter B, through his perfection, He completely identifies with me. And I put in quotes uh, something to help you kind of see what is meant by this thing that says he was perfected. Because he was perfected in obedience from baptism by water to a baptism of death. And he talked about both. Remember he said, I must be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And then he was at the cross and he called that a baptism. When he told James and John, the sons of Zebedee, he said, you can't hack this baptism I'm about to hack obedient to the fulfillment of all righteousness. Now go back up to letter C. I'm, I'm kind of hurrying, but I want to get to some application for you. Letter C, and I'm just going to tell you how it is here. Letter C, embrace the grind. Now the, where that came from is chapter five, verse eight says, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Now I, I well, let me read the rest of it. You always will value, you always will for what you value, love, and treasure. You'll always embrace the grind. I was at a marathon in San Antonio and this Marine walks into the bus. It's, you know, it's five o'clock in the morning, I'm going to the starting line. And it's always intimidating when a Marine walks in, you know, that's still sort of Marine-ish, you know, and uh, like just came off the battlefield and he had a hat on. Some of you know what this is. It says, embrace the suck. I was like, that's cool. And I, I'm, I'm sure it probably meant something crude, but, um, but it was awesome. You know, I was like, the whole heartbeat behind that is there's a bigger reason to embrace this. So I was joking with Joe about this the other day and you should probably do it if you're not highly offended easy. I started Googling marine terms. There's some cool ones, man. I mean, there's some cool ones. And, and they're all about embracing something that's terrible for something that's greater. What I'm concerned about is we have a generation of men who will not embrace the grind of being a follower of Jesus because they don't believe Jesus is worth it. Because most of us in this room will embrace the suck that our company tells us to. We will do whatever business dictates. We will answer our phone no matter the time of night. We will be at the office however long it takes. But what about the grind of being a warrior for Christ? What about the grind of redeeming generations of evil in your family in the moment of your family? What, what are you grinding through that you sacrifice it all for and your family sees it? I'm not telling you to go quit your job. I think you know that by now. But is there a bigger why to why you're walking and why you're talking? Let me give you some things to do this week and we'll be done. Um, 
You'll never know why you wake up until you know what you value. So I would encourage you this week to take a moment. Some of you are gonna think this is corny. Most of you won't do it. The truth is probably less than 13% of you will do it. So I'm talking to that group. Um, Take some time to sit down and write what you value the most. Years ago, Stephen Covey said it this way, when there were still Twin Towers in New York, he said, imagine standing on the Twin Towers and putting a steel I-beam between the two buildings. And I'm on one side and you're on the other. And he said, on the other side, I'm standing and I wave a dollar bill. And I say, cross the I-beam of the, of the World Trade Centers and I'll give you this dollar. Stupid example, because you'd all stand there and go, no, well, it's Midland, you might. So I, I don't know. But you wouldn't cross it for the dollar. And in fact, if he hung over the edge of that building, your favorite car, I, I'm assuming you wouldn't cross either. But if he held your name, would you cross? If, if he held your child, you'd cross. If he held up the concept of your integrity, would you cross? If he held up the issue of holiness, would you cross it? If he held up the issue of a dream, would you cross it? You may think that's an extreme answer. I submit to you the man who is gutless enough to not answer that question is not a man with enough guts to live the life God's given him. What do you value? And until you have identified that, you will be manipulated by the values of men. I encourage you to write that down. And before you say, have you? Oh, yes, I have. I wish I had my iPad with me and I'd put them up on the screen for you and show you. And I review them every quarter, every year. Here's the next one. I wanna encourage you, and I'm gonna write it this way. Pray big, pray crazy, pray dreams, and embrace destinations. Let me say it again. Pray big, pray crazy, pray for dreams, and embrace destinations. I wanna encourage you for once to lay all your cards on the table in prayer and to say, God, here's something huge and I just wanna lay it before you. And here's why. When you start laying the dreams before the throne, you may end up in destinations you would have never imagined. Start praying them. I'm telling you, when, when Bobby Evans said that to us the other day, it got all over me. So I've taken you way over time, I gotta quit. Find your values, pray big, be warriors. And uh, let's wait till next week to do that, okay? Can we do that? Oh, you wanna show it now? Okay, I'm gonna show this video if you wanna see this clip, but let me pray and you can leave if you have to. God, thank you for these men. May they fight well and um, preach well today. And if any of them stay and watch this video, may it be an encouragement to them. In Jesus' name, amen.